We're looking at Acts chapter 26 today. If you're able, I'll ask you to stand with me for the reading of God's word. Acts chapter 26, uh, beginning in verse, what verse does the worship guide begin in? Thank you. Just seeing who's with me. Verse 15. And I uh, said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things of which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you, and you're out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. A little background will help to situate us in today's passage, a little historical background. We've been making our way, uh, skipping a little bit through the last few chapters of Acts, and I've explained to you in previous weeks that we're doing this because the last few chapters of Acts are highly repetitive. Paul will actually make five appearances in five different courts and essentially give roughly the same defense, although this is the most elaborate and well-articulated of the five defenses. And we're skipping some of the travel narratives, which really just exist to explain how Paul arrives from one court to another court. So to catch you up to where we are today, last week Paul was appearing before Felix, and he gave his testimony and his defense before Felix. And Felix put him back in prison, it says, because he was wishing to do the Jews a favor, he left Paul in prison, Then it says, almost in an offhanded way, two years go by. 
So Paul's been in jail for two years. Felix is deposed and a new governor is assigned to take his place, which was quite common in the, particularly in the Roman world. Roman governors turned over quickly due to various political alliances. And Festus takes Felix's place. Well, Festus brings Paul out, hears, begins to hear from Paul, but it says the same thing about Festus as it did about Felix. It says he was hoping to do the Jews a favor, and so he suggests to Paul, I says, Paul, you know, it seems like you deserve a trial. Why don't you go back to Jerusalem? And Paul, of course, says, well, I know that's not going to go very well. I don't want to be tried in Jerusalem. I'll be put to death. And I've already appealed to the emperor and the Caesar I desire to go, which was his right as a Roman citizen. So Paul is still in jail. Festus is the governor in Caesarea. And along comes King Agrippa, right, a descendant of Herod. He's the king over Judea, uh, situated in Jerusalem. And he comes down, and Festus says, I've got this problem. Paul and this Jewish contention, and I wondered if you would speak into it. And so Agrippa said, I would be happy to hear from this man. And so Paul makes his appearance both before Festus and Agrippa at the same time. And this is the last part of his defense that he presents to them. And what I would like to focus on today is this notion that Paul articulates that's such an important theme or motif in Scripture, which is this notion that to come to Jesus and to be reconciled to God is to move from darkness to light. Right? To move out of a domain of darkness, a domain really of Satan, and then to move into a kingdom of God's authority, which is a kingdom of light. Well, what in the world does this mean? Right? It sounds lovely, but what does it actually mean? You weren't literally born blind, nor were you literally born in a cave in which there was no light and you had to grope around and find your way. But Scripture unequivocally states that you are born in a state of blindness and in a state of darkness and cannot find your way. And so what does it mean? What is this um, non-literal way of speaking intended to communicate to us and inform us how we're supposed to live? Unquestionably, it's a monumental shift. You can't talk about going from a domain of darkness in which you cannot see and are blind to a domain of light uh, where you can see and know how to make your way and not say that that isn't exceptional and monumental in every way. In fact, it's so monumental that it should cause us to assume that the transition between an unbeliever and a believer should be dramatic. In fact, you should be able to say, this person lives in light because everyone else who doesn't follow Jesus lives in darkness. But that's not so easy to say, is it? Well, it's so easy to mark out. Right? I was in a conversation recently with someone who was considering the faith, and this person made the charge, which I feel the sting of routinely, which is that uh, the church is irrelevant. And it stings because it's somewhat true. But I think it's true in part because we fail to wrestle with what the significance and meaning is of, of what it means to move from darkness to light and to actually ask what is required of us, what is, what is involved in understanding moving from one domain, one kingdom to another kingdom. It should be something that is obvious if it's true of us. And so this is what uh, we're wrestling with today, considering the, the nature of Paul's, uh, Paul's assertion, his claim there. And uh, his claim, uh, if you look, starts in verse 18. Paul's speaking about his call that came upon him to the Damascus Road. 
And uh, I'll even back up to verse 17, um, or midway through. God says, to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God and uh, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now that's a remarkable claim. Right? That the power of the news of Jesus being the Messiah, the power of the gospel, renders someone able to see, it opens their eyes, it moves them from a domain of darkness to a domain of light, it moves them from the reign of Satan to the reign of God, it grants forgiveness rather than guilt, and it grants sanctification, which simply means to be set apart for a purpose, rather than the purposelessness that exists in the world. That's pretty not, an outstanding assertion in terms of the effect of the gospel. So we're still after, we're going to summarize all of verse 18, really, by this notion of moving to darkness to light, because it's such an important theme for Luke, both in Luke and Acts. Where does this come from? Does Luke just invent this notion of darkness to light, or is it simply a common notion in the Greco-Roman world in the first century? We see this notion actually coming uh, to bear in redemptive history in the book of Isaiah where Isaiah will begin to speak of a servant who will come, a specially chosen servant of God. And this servant will be so unique that he will open the eyes of the blind and he will lead prisoners who are trapped in darkness into light. A good place to see this is Isaiah 42. Uh, one of my favorite descriptions of the servant is that he uh, will love, love the Lord God from the womb. In other words, Isaiah is saying, this specially chosen servant will be so disposed to God that even before he is born, his heart will belong completely to the Lord. And he goes on to describe the servant in verses 6 and 7 of, verse 40, of chapter 42. I am the Lord. I have called you, speaking of the servant, in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light to the nations, to open the eyes that are blind to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. All right? Now, who is the servant? Right? It's a, he brings a new covenant. He opens the eyes of the blind. He sets the prisoners free. He brings into the light those, sit, those who sit in darkness. All right? Now, of course, the servant will ultimately be revealed to be Jesus. And Luke borrows hev heavily from Isaiah to explain the significance and importance of Jesus as the suffering servant who is prophesied in Isaiah. And it's this message that Paul takes up and brings uh, to bear on the people to whom he ministers. Now we can take a pause for a moment and say, okay, again, do we have any better idea of what we're talking about in this notion of darkness and light? Say, okay, well, if we take Isaiah, and if we had time, we could consider the passages in Luke, and here we are in Acts. And the notion is this, that God is light, and to be drawn into proximity or relationship with him is to move into greater light, by which you have greater clarity. You understand who he is. You understand his intent for this world. You understand how you make your way through this world. Therefore, darkness, right? And the darkness that Isaiah talks about is the darkness that Israel keeps returning to and moving away from God. And thinking that they can decide how to make their way in this world. And that they know how to navigate 
and that they're not really interested in who God is as they move away from him. Darkness is to move away from God. Light is to move uh, toward God. All right. Well, who doesn't want to live in light? Right? Who wants to be characterized as living in darkness? The question then becomes, well, how do we move into the light? Right? Again, I'll press you. You can say, well, you believe in Jesus. Okay, but that's very simple. And there are lots of people who would claim to believe in Jesus who don't necessarily strike me as being examples of light-bearing and light-living individuals. So how does one actually move into the light? Well, Paul takes up that very question as he speaks to Festus and Agrippa. And you can see him taking it up uh, beginning in verse 20b, uh, about halfway through and then into 21. Right in the middle of uh, 20, Paul will say uh, that he's, been, he's talking about declaring the gospel uh, first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles, and halfway through says um, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. So Paul says to receive the gospel, right? how does one act upon it and move towards God? How does one move into the light? So it's number one, you repent. Number two, you do deeds in keeping with repentance. Well, what does it mean to repent? Now, first and foremost, the Greek word that we translate to repent in English means to change your mind. It means for you to, to come upon something and to be struck with it to such an extent that you begin to think about things in a completely different way. You, you reorder you know, the, the systems and the values and the paradigms that exist in your head to value something. Paul's a perfect example in which he grew up in as a Pharisee, valued Judaism and works in a way ascribed by that system, is met by Jesus, and repenting for him means that he has to say in his mind, right, beginning in his mind, if Jesus is God in the flesh and he's been raised from the dead, then everything I knew before I have to rethink. There's nothing that doesn't have to be reconsidered in light of that reality. But of course, Christianity is not simply something of your mind. Paul knows that and exhibits that on display through his life. Christianity is something that demands the whole person. And so Paul immediately goes on to say, you have repentance, but then you must be committed to deeds in keeping with repentance. In other words, for all the changes in your mind that you make, if they simply stay in your mind, and you say something like, I probably should do X, but don't do it, well, you have not carried through on deeds in keeping with repentance. And so you've only done half of what is expected of those who come to Christ and seek to move into the light. And so we see to move into the light is what? Requires repentance and deeds in keeping with repentance. Well, is that the whole story? It's certainly part of the story. It's just part of the story that cannot be dismissed. But if it's the whole story, you should start to get nervous. Because if you've been a Christian for any period of time, you know that you have a limited capacity to exercise repentance in your mind, changing of your mind, in a way that actually uh, controls and dictates the deeds that you're committed to so that your life is actually transformed. The message of the good news can't stop there. Otherwise, frankly, it's not very good. And Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on to verses 22 and 23. To this day I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both the small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim the light both to our people 
and to the Gentiles. Oh, so Paul goes on to say, listen, this repentance piece is really important, but the proclamation is really the proclamation of Christ. He is the one who proclaims light into the darkness. Why? Because he's been proven true. He is the servant. Right? Why? How do you know? Paul lists two prerequisites that prove Jesus is that servant and the Messiah, which is A, he must suffer for the, for the people, and B, he must be risen from the dead. And both these things being accomplished, Paul says Jesus now is the risen, qualified Messiah uh, to, um, to proclaim light uh, into a dark world. And so now Paul says that what's really important in terms of understanding the light and moving into it is understanding and running to Jesus' cosmic victory. He's defeated sin and death and his suffering and resurrection, and so you must be dependent upon him in order to live in the light. Okay? Well, now we've got repentance slash deeds in keeping with repentance on the one hand, and we've got Jesus' cosmic victory on the other hand. So which is it? How do we move into the light? Of course, it's not an either-or. It is a both-and, in which we must constantly run to Jesus, for there is no light without him coming into the world. And we must fall on our knees and throw ourselves on our mercy, but also ask his strength and his help, and to realize that there is no light except the light that emanates from him. And at the same time, that means that we also evaluate what's going on in our mind, what we're valuing, and then reordering our deeds so that they come in line with what our minds are taught to value by the scriptures. It's both repentance and deeds keeping with repentance and Jesus as the one who brings light into the world. Now one of the problems here is that you have a tendency, all of us have a tendency to err on one side or the other. In some ways it's based on your experience, in some ways it's based on your personality, in some ways it's based on where you feel like you are in standing with God. But some of you come to a place in which you either realize that you've been engaged in some sin and you feel guilt, or even life may not simply be going that well. And what do you do? What's the first thing that you think? What does your heart move toward? Right? The first thing you do is you say, I'm responsible for ABC and need to stop doing it. And instead of doing that, I need to do one, two, three. And the one thing that's missing from your commitment to your righteousness is Jesus. Because you've decided that you can handle all your repentance and your deeds in keeping with repentance all by yourself. And that's not going to go so well. But some of you are on the other side and you find yourself in the same place. You say, oh, I keep returning to this, this sin or I keep failing to really be what God wants me to be. And you say, is it really that big a deal? After all, if Jesus has suffered and been risen from the dead, and therefore I've been unified to him by faith, and my resurrection is guaranteed, at the end of the day, what difference does it make what I'm doing right now? And if I feel more pleasure, more joy in this moment of sin, or if I really just am not interested in doing what God calls me to do, right? at the end of the day, I still get in. So what's the big deal? Now, the problem with leaning to the left or to the right in this is that you never actually walk into the light. You continue to live in a place that really is devoid of Jesus because Jesus isn't going to honor that way in which you would take advantage of him. And in this, if you rely on your own repentance, then you don't need him. 
Right? In fact, in both ways, you're really saying you don't need him. Uh, that he's just serving you uh, on the one side and that he's irrelevant on the other. And either way, you don't actually get to enjoy what it means to live uh, in the light. So, what does Paul really have in mind? Paul makes two pretty interesting comments that both deserve a little bit of attention in the end of his address to Agrippa. The first comes in verse uh, 26. What does this balance of repentance uh, and faith in Christ's victory look like? This is what we're after. If this is how we live in light, this is how we move out of darkness, and I know some of you should be pretty tired of living in darkness. So how do you make this transition? If it's a balance between repentance and faith, what does this actually look like? Well, it looks like not simply a profession, right, but something that can be put on display. Look at verse 26 with me. Uh, Paul has been speaking to uh, Festus and Agrippa, and he goes on, For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. Well, what does Paul mean? Now, in English today, you might simply read, oh, well, this hasn't been done in secret or in quiet. But the phrase in the first century meant a little bit more than that. It referred to philosophy that had been formulated by someone privately and had not been vetted publicly. So in other words, Paul is saying, listen, some philosophers come up with a system of thought that informs their life, but they do so secretly, and no one actually tests it. So it's really actually fragile and hasn't been refined by being challenged. That's not the case with Christianity. Since the resurrection of Jesus, we've been laying down our life all over the Mediterranean world. We've been putting our faith on display and welcoming challengers from every corner. This isn't something fragile. It's something we have utter confidence in because we believe that it is totally true. Nothing has been done in a corner. And so the question for us is, is this balance of faith and repentance something that we do in a corner because we know that it's fragile, because we're not really committed to it, or is it something that you would be willing to put on display? In other words, that you're so committed or so believing in the resurrection of Jesus and so committed to repentance in your mind and repentance in deeds and keeping with repentance that you're happy for it to be challenged, you're happy for it to be put on exhibit because it's true, because you've really actually uh, committed to it. It would be display of something that really, you know, you read verse 18, eyes being open and moving from darkness to light and from the kingdom of Satan to God. Right? Words coming out of your mouth alone, right? You know, the spirit can do whatever he wants. But the testimony of Jesus and Paul is so powerful, not because simply of the words coming out of their mouth, but because their lives tell the story of the words that they speak. You're talking about Jesus, who we might call the, the most impressive human in the history of the world, lives an impoverished peasant life and dies the death of a criminal. He doesn't qualify for any standard of success in the American West. Paul sacrifices all that he's achieved, which was significant, to go around and live again as a peasant, to never have a home, simply to proclaim the truth, the light that he believes has come into the world. And so, in what ways 
Do your actions actually put this balance of faith and repentance on display? Not simply by speech, but actually on display. Now, it's challenged this week that sometimes I, I leave you hanging short on application. And that, fair enough. Now, but two things need to be said here. Number one is, uh, that's partially intentional. Right? If you think about Jesus' teaching, all of his teaching is done almost exclusively in parables. Apart from the Sermon on the Mount and a few bits and pieces, the vast majority of Jesus' teaching is done in parables. And how do the people usually receive the parables? More often than not, you read what? The people didn't have any idea what he's talking about. And then if Jesus goes on and gives some kind of disclosure, it's usually just to the 12. Now, that's a profoundly effective way to teach. If I could pull that off, I would do it every week. Right? You'd come in, we'd sit down, I'd tell you a parable. Let's pray, go home. And you'd all be like, what did that mean? And then you'd have to chew on it. And this is the beauty of the parable. You weigh the story. You insert yourself into the story. You look at the story from the perspective of the different characters. And you constantly have to chew on what does this mean and how, how does it have any connecting point with my life. But in that process of figuring that out, you're actually changed. Right? It's in wrestling with the word that you are actually changed. And that's essential for you. And we all have to admit, right, right off the bat, that we are part of the period, laziest period, generation period, ever period in the history of the church, right? We commit less than any of our forebears in terms of actually wrestling with the word right, and being shaped by it. And if you don't go home this week or any week and look at the passage that we talk about on Sunday, and if you don't look at the questions that we write every week to help you understand the passage, then there's not a whole lot I can do for you. Right? Your faith just isn't very real if it exists at all. Right? But that being said, I'm very willing to think with you, what does it mean to take this passage and to press it into our lives? Right? To make actually real change. I'm not talking about, oh, I'm going to go home and think about repentance. Right? No. I'm talking about coming up with a deed of real repentance, keeping a repentance that actually changes something, that gives evidence to the change in your mind and makes you realize your dependency upon Christ. All right, so let's go. Boys and girls, you exist in a world in which you have friends and social circles. And those are safety nets for you. You think, this is a safe place. I like these friends. I don't want to let outsiders in. And I don't want to move out toward outsiders. But you're reading a passage in which Jesus and Paul, as light bearers, their entire mission, right, is to bring light into a dark place and then proceed into dark places and extend light. So for you, it might look like by deciding who is the person who's not in a circle. Who is the person who's not included and moving toward that person and loving that person? And if it costs you with your existing friends, all the better. Right? Then you begin to understand something about the life of Jesus and Paul, and you begin to understand what it means to, be, to, to run to Jesus in the midst of fear and anxiety in following him and to rely on his strength rather than your own. Parents, you know, what do you desire for your children? We have here the two perhaps greatest figures in the history of Christianity, obviously Jesus, right? But Paul, probably the most significant ambassador of light in the history of the world. By any measure of success today, they get an F, right? 
They have no financial security. They don't accomplish any, um, any, any notoriety or degrees or level of business success, right, by which they exert their power. And what would, where would we be without them? So when you look at your kids and think about the time you're going to invest, what do you really desire for them? Do you desire for them to be light bearers? Or do you desire for them to be good at sports and to be financially secure and to get into the right school? And on and on it goes. Well, the American version of success has so little to do with what we're seeing here. So what would it mean for you to start to actually repent in your mind and then change things at home? Maybe it would be to say, hey, you know what? This activity that you love, we're going to stop because we're not participating at all in the kingdom of God. And so instead, we're going to go and participate in some tangible way. We're going to go and work at a, at a soup kitchen. We're going to labor amongst the poor in Dallas. We're going to do something that raises money for India. We're going to do something that's intentional for the kingdom. Or perhaps, I know of several ministers I respect a great deal, they pray regularly for their kids to fail. Right? For them, their, their worst fear is that their kids will be competent at everything. Why? Because if their kids are competent at everything, then why do they need Jesus? Right? Where's, the short, where's the angst and shortcoming that might cause, drive them to be relying upon their Savior? Right? So maybe it means that we pray and actually talk how wonderful it is that you would fail in some capacity and to realize that you're not the Savior of the world and invite you to taste more of the Savior of the world as we invite our kids into that. We could also, t- you know, um, again, what do you desire for your kids? Uh, I had a conversation not that long ago with a parent. And the parents say, well, now that, now that my kids are, you know, 15 or so, I really think their faith is, is up to them and they can decide and do what they want. I just thought, really? Uh, a, 15 is not an adult. But B, if your kid came to you and was, was vomiting blood, and they're like, I don't need a doctor, would you be like, okay, you're 15. You can make this decision for yourself, right? Or uh, your 15-year-old comes home and says, yeah, I'm done with school. They have nothing to teach me. I'm good to go. You'd be like, oh, okay. Well, you're 15. You can make good decisions now and are ready to bear that responsibility. But when it comes to your spirituality and faith, say, yeah, whatever. You, you do what you've got to work this out. I'll tell you, the one thing that you've communicated to your kid, right, is that school and their physical health, because you would never compromise on either of those, are more important than their spiritual state. And why should they be concerned about it if, if parents aren't, right? What values, what state, you know, how are you communicating by the way you live your life and the way you invest your time. And for those of you who think you're off the hook and thought we were almost done, right? Those of you single or no kids or empty nesters, right? Sometimes, it's not always true, but sometimes you have the most disposable time, right? You should be the SEAL Team 6 of the church, right? Zach and I should be overwhelmed like we're taking heavy fire, right? Call, call in... Call in this group of people. Instead, so often we invest in, well, I want to do different things. I want to engage in a hobby. I want to enjoy the season of my life rather than truly investing it in the kingdom. I've tasted a little bit of this. When I finished my last degree, 
right? You, you're in the, particularly in the last year, you're just in, you're writing all the time and researching all the time. And suddenly, it's like you're on this high-speed train and you just get off. And you're like, oh, there's this world. And I thought, well, I'm going to develop a hobby. And I pursued all kinds of things. I tried taking up guitar. And I tried carving a pipe. And I took a woodworking course. I thought, I'm going to do something really fun. And boy, the Spirit just ground me down in the midst of that in the sense of what purpose does any of this serve for the kingdom? Right? Not that some of those things can be valuable, but I am, I'm musically talentless virtually, right? That's not an exaggeration. My playing and singing is never going to do anything for the worship of the church, right? What's the point? Or uh, can you imagine appearing before Jesus and saying, hey, look at this neat pipe I carved. And Jesus saying, I'm so impressed. Good use of time. Pastor Ryan, right? Thousands of people are dying and millions of people haven't heard the gospel and you sat around and carved a pipe, right? Now, I'm not saying there's, we can't have hobbies and we can't pursue some degree of leisure, right? But for me, it was such a silly investment. And so I came to the, had to come to the place where, uh, so I've got this time and if it's going to be invested in the kingdom, it's going to be one of two things is what it boiled down to. And one was pursuing counseling to try to be a better pastor, uh, and speak more effectively into people's lives, or it was to be a cost worker and to, um, you know, the, the lay people who represent kids in the foster care system. You get assigned to a kid, and you're their advocate in the midst of that system, right? And those were ways in which I had to say, yeah, I don't get to do whatever I want with all of my time, right, because I'm not my own. And anyway, I can, you've got all eternity to do all of those things, right? I think we'll, we'll engage in all sorts of arts and creativity in heaven that far exceeds the present world now. Uh, but I've only got a very limited time to invest in the extension of the kingdom. So there's, there's some brainstorming, right? What does it mean to actually take this passage, to look at Jesus and Paul, to ask what it means to live in the light and to be a light bearer and to actually press it into our lives in a substantive way? And that is something that you have to wrestle in. I cannot come over to your house and be you and listen to the Holy Spirit for you. Right? And I say, hey, guess what the Holy Spirit said to you? Right? You have to listen to the Holy Spirit. And the only way that's going to happen is if you're in the Word and asking, what does this mean for me to be faithful to Jesus? And the beautiful thing that happens as a result is really... You would, you would miss it just reading over this without really thinking about it. I've never seen this before or even thought about it. But if you look at verses 28 and 29, uh, Paul says, um, or Agrippa, um, well, I'm going to back up to verse 27. Paul says to King Agrippa, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Well, to become what Paul is, what is that? Well, it's not only a Christian. Look at verse 18. It is a bearer of the message of light. And so he would that all would become message bearers of the light. But here's the really interesting part. As I mentioned earlier, all of verse 18 is messianic language. It's servant language from Isaiah. Servant language from Isaiah was initially intended only to be applicable to whom? 
to Jesus. But now it's being applied to Paul. And what Luke is saying, right, what's being unveiled before our eyes, is Paul is participating now in the mission of the servant of Isaiah because he carries on the mission of Jesus. Which means that anyone who then become, participates in the mission of Jesus and becomes a, a bearer of the proclamation of light right, also shares in the Isaiahic language of the servant. What That you would be invited to be part of the community that will bring light to the nations. How in the world could your life be more significant? But for you to be a light bearer, you have to move into the light. Let's pray that Jesus would meet us there as we come to his table this morning. Father, for the darkness of this world, we thank you that you have pierced it and that light has entered in through the person of Jesus and that you have invited us to be ambassadors of that light. Would you forgive us for being more committed to the darkness than we ought to be? And would you encourage us to lay down the things that we so desperately value culturally and instead to run to you, to run to you and to think and to dwell upon your victory over sin and death, to dwell upon you advocating us for us on the right hand of the Father. And out of that reality, to have our minds changed, would you help us to repent? Would you help us to be committed to deeds in keeping with repentance? And would you nourish us for that task for we desperately need to be reliant on you. Would you meet us at this table? We ask in Christ's name. Amen.